Many Ukrainians have told me that before February 2022, they could never have imagined that full-scale war would come to their country in the 21st century. But it did, and Ukrainians' resilience has been extraordinary. They're not just fighting for their lives, families and liberty, but also for their land, culture, heritage and language. Today, I'm speaking with Mariana Aliskiv, the chairperson at the State Agency for Tourist Development of Ukraine. The work of the SATD is coordinated by the Cabinet of Ministers of Ukraine and the Minister of Infrastructure of Ukraine, and is responsible for marketing Ukraine as a tourism destination and with developing tourism infrastructure. Tourism will be an important sector of the economy that helps with the reconstruction of Ukraine after it's achieved victory. Mariana, welcome to the channel. Hello. Now, before we start talking about tourism, and it's a tricky topic, of course, in, in, in wartime, because there can't really be a full tourism industry at the moment, but it's about the expectation of one. But you're incredibly busy nonetheless, aren't you? How do you, how do you fill your time? Um, I mean, somehow it's a lot of work, not much less than, than in pre-war period, uh, pre-full invasion, uh, invasion period. Uh, we do work on developing uh, also domestic tourism and, I mean, keeping it on track a little bit uh, because um, one part of our country, uh, which was uh, the most popular among Ukrainians for travel, is southern part of Ukraine, seaside, is currently partly occupied and partly um, closed for tourism for for the security reasons we have mined uh, uh, sea and and beaches so they are not um, people cannot go there so people go mostly to western part of ukraine which are carpathians and um, but they have less knowledge about central part of ukraine and that's why some of Carpathian regions are crowded that are more known and some don't have enough tourists. So we're trying to work with those flows and making the parts of the central Ukraine more uh, more popular among Ukrainians. Maybe it sounds strange, but I mean, when you live during the war for more than a year, uh, you still need some time for recovery and to spend with your family and to to spend it outside the cities that are shelled like every night for example keep this month that people a lot of people had bad sleep and, and go to shelters during the night and of course for them with their kids when the vacation time in school will, will start is really necessary to go to some place that is more quiet and of course we have some regions that are far from 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 any um, I don't know, like infrastructure objects, which are like in the mountains, so some uh, nature sites that um, have less uh, of, of these air raid um, alarms and, and more nicely for people to travel. And of course, we also work for the future on promoting Ukraine um, and, and trying to uh, make this extended demand for travel to Ukraine so that people would have Ukraine on their mind after it will be safe again to travel, to visit it, to meet Ukrainian people, to discover Ukrainian culture, and and to see to see those you know cities uh, that uh, suffered also for, from the war. Yes, it hadn't even occurred to me that there would be a high demand for internal tourism, but you know people fighting on the front they need time out, they need uh, time to rest in between their. Uh, you know, their shifts. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, there's no reason, I guess, why people in the cities shouldn't, uh, 
shouldn't be allowed to have a break. You know, wartime doesn't stop people being people and they have the right to, to do all those things. Um, and as you say, I don't think before the war that many people knew much about the geography of Ukraine. You know, people would have heard of Odessa. People would have heard of Crimea, of course, and will have some impression of what it would be like to holiday there. But I think that's pretty much where it where it stops. You know, a few people might have gone to Chernobyl, um, you know, in the more extreme kind of sort of travel experience. Um, uh, some might say sort of slightly, slightly tacky, perhaps. Um, but cities like Lviv and others, you know, you need to, I guess, bring many more places to people's consciousness as tourism options. Uh, yes, of course. And um, in general, Ukraine was not on a world tourism map as a country. So people were traveling there here, of course. We had tourists and, for example, Lviv had around um, 2 million tourists uh, in 2019. And half of those tourists were international tourists, mostly, of course, from Poland, a lot from Belarus, but also Western Europe, States, Canada. But these were, you know, the, the very narrow target audiences, if I can say so. Uh, and but, but mostly people would not think of Ukraine in, I don't know, top five places they want to visit. And um, so when we pay this very high price for, in general, brand of Ukraine and knowledge worldwide, yes, so people know where Ukraine is located, our geography, and in general about the country, it's still a big challenge to put it on tourism map because what you see in the news doesn't look like, you know, touristically attractive uh, places. And um, but there are many actually very, very nice and attractive places. So we have Lviv, as you mentioned, which is the central part is uh, part of UNESCO heritage. And the city is extremely beautiful, uh, Western European style. Um, mostly built during times of Austrian empire with beautiful um, architecture, opera, house, and many other things. And is actually very dynamically developing city in terms of urban uh, development and being comfortable for, for its citizens. It, it has a lot of IT industry workers, so it's very hip. And, 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 and now it became one of the centers for this humanitarian aid because it's in the Western part of our country. Um, so yes, we need, we understand we need to tell more world about, for example, this city, but we also have this more like smaller towns in Western part of Ukraine that are also very nice and, and but they don't have maybe enough developed tourism infrastructure actually. And also Carpathian mountains where we have amazing health resorts, ski resorts, and also preserved culture which is like very unique. It's a Hutsul um, area. Uh, it's um, like closer to Romanian border. Plus this is Ivano-Frankivsk and Zakarpatia regions where people really preserve all their traditions like they were hundred years ago. And the weddings are very traditional. They don't wear white dresses, but these traditional uh, costumes and um, for for every holiday there are special parts of, of their dress what they're dressing in so this is extremely uh interesting they have a lot of this um hand uh, crafts uh that they still develop so these things they are very popular this authenticity national parks nature among european travelers 
but unfortunately not known for them yet. So of course we do plan this uh, marketing campaign and um, actually uh, our agency was created in 2020. Just I was appointed a week before pandemic. So all the plans for, we had for promotion Ukraine were a little bit ruined with the first COVID and now war. Uh, but between, you know, when, when the COVID restrictions were a little bit um, smaller, we worked with uh, with Saudi Arabia, for example, with this Gulf countries market. And we had many tourists from, from there into Southern 21. But then with the full scale war, we, we got back to, I don't know, to probably 90s uh, situation when when it, no almost no international tourism here. Mm. But there has been one thing that's changed. And of course, that is the awareness of where Ukraine is, what Ukraine is, uh, and aspects of its identity, which wouldn't necessarily have been clear at all. So whereas you've you've got these incredible barriers to tourism, do you think that when victory happens, um, that actually your task is going to be a little easier because people now have a clear idea of what Ukrainian stands for and quite a lot of curiosity potentially to come and see it? Uh, yes, it will be easier, of course, because as I said, it's already brand that is known worldwide. But then is our goal to to a little bit switch the the perspective of that brand? Yeah, that it actually can be touristically attractive, and not to go any like. So that's the the threat we have to become this war destination that we don't want to to become. Yes, we don't want people to come here like the, the Chernobyl tourism, basically, yes, when people were going to Chernobyl with this dark tourism aim and, and also together with that, it was this, this active, people were trying to shoot from something or, you know, put these um, like gas masks or something like this, making a little bit, because it was also a side of tragedy, but somehow, because a lot of tour operators made of it the, the place of some fun, which is wrong. So for us, it's a challenge. So we don't want the people who go to Ukraine and I don't know, because they can shoot from a tank or, or I don't know, do some kind of military activities at some sites. I'm sure that some tour operators will sell it, unfortunately, but we don't want it to become like a main main uh, sales point. And uh, that's why we do start our work now with the uh, with the memory and uh, memory of the war and these roots of memory we call them, uh, where we can tell the history and we would switch that people attention about the war more to 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 understand the reasons better. Yes, because the, these reasons go to three hundred years ago and many many more years ago because Ukraine was always fighting for its independence against Russia, uh, which was trying to, to invade Ukraine and to, to uh, rule Ukraine. Uh, and also to, to understand the bravery of people, how they were fighting to see all the war crimes Russian committed here. So, and at the same time, not to re-traumatize people who went through all these occupation and, and ruined uh, houses and ruined lives of, of many people. So it's a, it's a big challenge and um, it's a very sharp edge of what we can promote and how we can promote 
that it would not hurt feeling of some people. Mm. And I think there's some good examples in Britain of how that works. I mean, obviously, you can still go and even some of the major buildings in London, like the British Museum, uh, Victorian Albert Museum, you can still see um, damage to the stonework from explosives, but they're they're kept there as a kind of silent memorial and, and actually many people don't even notice or spot them. It's only if you're looking really closely, you'll see evidence of bomb damage in central London. But I think in London and and uh, in the southeast of England, you know, you can go and see uh, Churchill's bunker where he planned the operations from. And you can also go to Bletchley Park where the codebreakers broke the German ciphers, which was instrumental in the war. But both of those are done extremely tastefully. They're very educational and, and respectful. And I think that that perhaps is a good model for how yeah. you know educational references to the war can work. Yeah, it's very important. So, and that's when we ask people, because we do work with, with a lot of people, we ask them how you want to like memorize, yes, commemorate the, the, this, this war. And people say, a lot of people say, we don't know how there's some, some have their sort, but some have just, even those who don't have any ideas how they say, definitely not the way Soviet Union did it. And um, because it's really, you know, these, I don't know if you you aware, but uh, the postaments with tanks and this, you know, showing some tragedies and, um, you know, like weapons that kill people, putting them on postament and this narrative, we can repeat that you know, now they are repeating, becoming really invaders and, and doing something they kind of say they were fighting against uh, during World War II. But unfortunately, it was one totalitarian state that, you know, won the war against the other one. So for Ukraine, really, the World War II was, I think, not 100% a victory, yeah, because we were occupied by another uh, totalitaristic state and and there are many Ukrainians were killed and millions of Ukrainians died in that war because of the strategy uh Soviet army was using without not caring about people's life at all and uh that's what we now observe from from Russian side when they just put these people you know to die uh, and they don't care about anybody's lives and this is, but we do care and if life of people and actually like this humanity and people should be in the center of, of all the memorials and all of the, the, the roots and stories we will tell about the war. And I think not that many people realize, but the uh, fragments of history that we see in uh, Kiev uh, and in Minsk as well, um, are are a small part of what was a very vast uh you know 19th century architecture the you know, 18th century an incredibly rich architecture but so much of it was destroyed and razed to the ground during the second world war and both belarus and um ukraine were really the the ground zero of that campaign i mean russia suffered but not not to the same extent architecturally uh, and i think that's very little understood yeah, and that's unfortunately when we read in many history books about this war and what they study, they say that Russians, Russians, you know, but like won the war. But actually, there were many Ukrainians and all the World War II actually 
was mainly on our part uh, in part of Ukraine. Many cities were destroyed. And uh, yeah, they were rebuilt, but I mean, they, they lost that that spirit, of course, and uh, architecture is a bit different and uh, it's very sad. So for us now also rebuilding uh, the city that are destroyed will be a big challenge uh, to how we will build them. And um, and this is another thing we are, we are working on as, as a country now and we are thinking about their future. Because, you know, again, the images we have of Bakhmut are of, you know, terrible ruins um, that very much remind people of Aleppo, that remind people of Grozny, of course, Russia has, has done the same thing in these places, but Bakhmut did have quite a lot of um, historical um, uh, objects of interest in architecture. And I guess it's always a challenge, isn't it, uh, as to whether to restore um, those things that are destroyed uh, or whether to start afresh. Um, no, no, in, in the tourism sector, that's not necessarily your, your challenge, but you know, you're going to need to sell the results of that, that decision to people. Um, and eventually, um, you know, tourism in the East will need to be revived, um, just as in the West, to help redevelopment. And that that's going to be a great challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it will. That's why I switched, like, because I have maybe a little bit more free time than, than many other colleagues in the ministry who deal with re rebuilding critical infrastructure, because our ministry is responsible for rebuilding everything in Ukraine that is destroyed. Uh, but also we, we the ministry is responsible for architecture and that's why um I took that role of of uh, commissioner to Venice Biennale for architecture and started working a little bit with architects now too and thinking and working with the with the vision how we see the the rebuilding of these cities uh because of course that many people want to come back and they want to have their houses fast rebuilt but then these will be these very typical blocks again, like the Soviets did after World War II. But then we have these really great examples, like for example, Rotterdam in the Netherlands that was destroyed and rebuilt in completely unique way uh, of architecture that was not copied or, or something. Yeah, but this is some, but it became a big tourism attraction and one of the, that doesn't look very, like any other town in the Netherlands, but people like to visit it and actually because of that uh, unique, uh, interesting architecture. And of course, Rotterdam, I, I was lucky enough to go there. They've also done the same, haven't they, with the architectural uh, in, industrial heritage. So again, from being a huge sort of industrial port city, um, those facilities kind of declined and were no longer required. But again, they very sensitively adapted the industrial uh, architecture and the uh, the port front and a lot of the equipment's being preserved, which makes it, you know, absolutely unique feeling. But they've built sort of beautiful apartments um, in those areas. So that's very sensitively done, isn't it? Yeah. So there are many examples in the world you could kind of have an inspiration from, but we still need to find, I guess, our own way at some point. And uh, and we'll see. I mean, in general, people left those cities. They they lost everything there, and it's a huge amount of, of people. Yes, there are many many people. And uh, will they come back, or there will be some I don't know new citizens who who will work there, and what these cities will be, what will be their main role 
in Ukraine and in the world. So many, many questions to answer. And of course, tourism um, should be part of it. And we want people to travel also not only to Western Ukraine that I'm sure will be the first to open for tourism, like uh, the Western uh, um, Ukrainian airports probably will be the first to, to reopen uh, because in the East, a lot are destroyed. But still, we have, for example, city of Kharkiv that is also very unique in its way. It has beautiful architecture, also as a history, but it was hardly, you know, damaged during this war and has these scars. And but people still keep living there, even though the the, the rockets uh, takes only thirty seconds to reach the city, and they are constantly shelled uh, by Russia from Belgorod side. But people keep working, companies work, people, you know, and this is something where when you go there, I travel there pretty often. We work with them also on this new um, new vision of what how we can promote the city in the future. Uh, and also to understand that war is close, because sometimes in other parts of Ukraine, uh, you, you forget a little bit about that. I mean, you don't forget, but it doesn't look the war, yes. Uh, so, but there you, you have this feeling. And, and people, I think the people, again, what, what I was talking at the beginning, that people are something like a central part. So these people that are irresistible, yeah, they, they like, they, they try to, um, unbreakable, sorry, yeah, that they are unbreakable in, in the way of uh, fighting this war and keep living their lives. And they're interesting models, aren't they, for, for reconstruction? And here you've got several layers of reconstruction, because as you said, you've got the, you know, the, the 19th century, 18th century historic architecture, a lot of it was destroyed in the Second World War. Then you had the sort of Soviet brutalism architecture with the, the, the huge tower blocks looking at images of cities like uh, Mariupol and, and so on. Before the war, it seems Ukrainians were able to sort of fashion actually quite pleasant cities uh, out of, of these sort of Soviet infrastructures. And that was sort of moving forward with what, what they'd got. Um, now it's a big question. What do you go back to? Do you go back to a, a historicism or do you go back, you know, do you create something new? In Britain, you know, many cities after the war, only rebuilt a very small number of historical buildings or repaired ones which weren't too badly damaged. So we moved on in the 1950s in the sense that the future was dynamic and the future was much better than the past. Um, you know, that that was an extreme point of view. And in fact, a lot of historic buildings were lost in the 50s, 60s, and even 70s were destroyed unnecessarily. So what we see in our cities is is very much a result of the sort of planning of the 50s and especially the 60s. And, you know, in hindsight, some of that did not work at all. And a lot of it is deeply unattractive. You know, it's not good for tourism. Whereas in Poland, we saw, uh, which was, of course, raised to the ground. There was almost nothing left of Warsaw. Um, but they rebuilt whole, you know, quarters of historic buildings and now that is that is a very strong uh, part of the economy. Tourism in in uh, in Warsaw and other cities is very very powerful. Also in the Czech Republic, um, in Prague, it didn't suffer nearly as much as other European cities. But Soviet planning did erase some of the character, and 
I was shocked to just find, you know, myself standing in a square that looked absolutely like a classic medieval square. Um, and you, unless you look really closely, you never would have guessed that it was actually a, a recreation um, because you see the 60s photographs and you're standing in a sort of modernist, fairly brutalist kind of square. And then in the in the, in the late 20th century or, or early 21st, you're standing in, in what looks like a, you know, incredibly authentic medieval scene. And you see how building by building they restored it back. So these are some of the interesting challenges, aren't they, of where you go and what you do with that? Uh, yes, most of the cities that were destroyed uh, now in the east of Ukraine, of course, they weren't the the really architectural precious, let's call it this way, mostly Soviet Soviet uh, type of, of buildings. And of course, Mariupol is one of the, the examples where they had some of the very nice uh, historical buildings that were destroyed, like the theater and others. Uh, but mostly, yeah, it was Soviet-built uh, um, buildings. And, um, and yeah, it's a challenge. Again, what, as I said, that either we rebuild everything fast that would be maybe not like Soviet, but also not very long-lasting type of, of, of buildings. And uh, or we do something something unique. We start like planning these borders in more modern way, more oriented for 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 people. Or maybe it even will be in some points cheaper to build another city close by and just leave it like like that, the, the some of the ruins. I don't know. You know, it depends. Like Bakhmut, for example, Mariupol, of course, it needs to be rebuilt because it's port and it's sea and uh, you know many many things that would make it uh, become a new city with, with a per probably new perspective. And it was also, you know, they worked a lot. They were chosen as a cultural capital of Ukraine. That should the 2021 they were the cultural capital of Ukraine, and they did a lot of events uh, for that, and they developed many cultural centers. So it's really sad the city that was investing a lot in its uh, infrastructure and in being uh, comfortable for its citizens uh, was destroyed so badly. When we talk about some other towns like Marinka, Bakhmut, it's very, I mean, they, they completely destroyed. There is like nothing, the strategy of Russia to, to destroy everything on their way that goes from their time of uh, when they were um, part of this Mongol Tatar, yes, like invasion that also was invading Ukraine and destroying and burning everything. Like they burned Kiev many times. And this is unfortunately is going back, you know, they, they, they do all the time the same. Um, and, um, yeah, they can get the land with everything destroyed. And then they would say, okay, we have, I don't know, victory and millions of our people would die, but who cares? We will want something. So it's really difficult to fight uh, such an enemy. Uh, but I, we, we do believe and we do everything for, for good to win and for, for democracy to win and for civilization to win this, this, um, I don't know how even call what they are doing uh, and who they are. Uh, but yeah, and then then we need to think how how to make those cities um, being comfortable, looking that we will still have the border with Russia somewhere close by. And before Russia is completely demilitarized, denuclearized, 
I don't know, probably stopping being an empire and collapsing to, to smaller states, I think we'll have this enemy always as an enemy and we need to understand it. Uh, we need to, to be ready to fight anytime and the cities needs to be rebuilt in the way that they can become fortresses too, probably. So this is something uh, we need to also keep in mind. And whereas you're going around the world in places like the Venice Biennale, really talking about the future, there's a dual purpose, isn't there? Because by talking about Ukraine's future, you're also placing in people's minds the idea that it needs to be defended and supported in the present. So do you see your role when you talk to international partners as very much a role that uh, you know is forward-looking, but is also about sort of generating support and supporting the war effort now. Yeah, it's it's very important. For example, we were participating in the exhibition in Spain in Madrid Fitur uh, Fair, and for example, a Minister of Defense also visited our booth at the Tourism Fair, a Minister of Defense of Spain, and uh, yeah, so we told her, I told her that uh, to. We want to restart tourism, we want to rebuild tourism, we want the next year to invite people to come to Ukraine here. And now we're saying thank you. So it's basically our main goal and now participating in tourism exhibitions. But for that, we need more weapons and we need more of the military support. And um, of course, being present in the main um, worldwide uh, exhibitions, events is important uh, to, to raise this voice of Ukraine and Ukrainians and tell that, you know, we are still fighting, we're still there, don't forget about us. We understand that, you know, you all live your peaceful life and that's good uh, because we don't want to for everybody to suffer, yes? And like, we are also try to live our normal life as much as we can, but we are fighting there also for, for your future. And uh, because, if they invade Ukraine, they're not going to stop here. They would start invading more and influencing the world more and bringing more destruction. So, yes, we need that help now in the military humanitarian um, uh, aspects. But, but later we would need that support of traveling to Ukraine. That would be a best way to, to help us after the war is over is to go to Ukraine, to spend your money here to see a little bit, to feel it, to understand us and understand the country, understand maybe why we are fighting for it. Why are, are we the way we are? It's, it's also important. And actually an interesting fact that I've seen at the Biennale in the part of uh, main exhibition, uh, actually British um, architectural bureau uh, that is called Forenic Architecture, if I'm not mistaken, with the name um, of forensic, just, just a moment, I will double check. Um, so mm, forensic architecture. So they made uh, a project um, of Nebelivka hypothesis. That is Ukrainian um, town. I mean, there is now Ukrainian town and um, 6,000 years before the Christ, uh, it was um, the big settlement of Tripilia culture uh, and is considered a city 
actually, with, because it has everything, all the aspects of the city, but there was no this hierarchy, yes, so there was no temple or places where people, I don't know, the richer, the one who ruled lived, but it was a the democratic city. So I think that this um, will for freedom, democracy, and, and everything is like for us from, from these prehistoric times. And uh, I think it's really good that uh, British architects, British uh, scientists pay attention to that too. And uh, uh, this unique um, settlement is being shown on the on Venice uh, Biennale. So I think that uh, it's also a part of our job to show these sites and make them touristically attractive and for people better to, to understand uh, Ukrainians and Ukrainian history and culture. And that's incredibly important, isn't it? Because again, if we look at tourism to England, of course, people will come to London for the big museums, they'll come for the entertainments and so on, but also visiting places like uh, the recreation of Shakespeare's Theatre in London, visiting Stratford, uh, Shakespeare's birthplace, or even going to, say, the Lake District to see where Beatrix Potter wrote, uh, you know, her beautiful children's books about animals and so on. So capitalising on literature and literary traditions um, is an incredibly important part, certainly, of British tourism. You know, how many times have I been through Baker Street and you'll hear, you know, tourists talking about Sherlock Holmes and that kind of stuff. Um, Ukraine, of course, has a unique literary identity, uh, but it's far less known uh, around the world. Uh, and even amongst Ukrainians are, are, are discovering their own literary heritage uh, as the uptake in Ukrainian language uh, increases and people naturally uh, move away from perhaps the sort of Russian classics, which they would have been more inclined to read. So how how do you think, uh, you know, uh, the literary traditions of Ukraine can be used to uh, inspire uh, tourism? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question and, and, and a big, I would say, problem because really for hundreds of years, um, when part of Ukraine was uh, under the rule of Russian Empire, Ukrainian language was forbidden. There were a lot of decrees from this Russian Tsar to forbid printing uh, books in Ukrainian language, teaching Ukrainian language. So that is really, again, shows that, you know, after all these pressures, the language and culture had during many years, we still have it and it's still dominating in the country. So this, I think, is one of the unique cases because in many, many other countries, for example, Belarus, languages almost uh, you know non-existing anymore but but they have their own language but people some of people in Belarus don't, don't even understand this language and they can't speak it so um and yes and many many writers many poets were killed their books were burnt and you know we had a lot of that unfortunately but at the same time we do have uh, good examples of literature and the problem is it's not translated to to the other languages so um that is also not really our job but i think it's important and and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about talking more with the with the people who are responsible for this working on actually translating some of the classic ukrainian literature to other languages especially to english and putting it as a part of eastern european literature that is being studied 
in the universities, in schools, because there is a lot of Russian literature. And I have a friend, a good friend, I have a lot of discussions about it. He likes Russian literature. And he was studying Russian and Polish literature among this Eastern European, but nothing about Ukrainian. So it looks like it doesn't exist. And like we're talking about tourism, that Ukraine is not on a map of, of world tourism was not, and it's our aim to put it on that map. The same with, with probably a lot of aspects of our, our heritage, uh, music, for example, yes, literature. And in music, uh, Ukraine has the biggest, the, 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 the largest amount of um, these folk songs in the world that are recorded. And uh, really our, you know, and for example, in Russia, they don't have it almost. Yes, everything that was um, created is just like by maybe 100 years ago. For Ukraine, is many hundreds years ago. And also these Christmas carol songs that, for example, don't exist in Russian language at all. Sometimes they think, sing Ukrainian uh, carol songs in some of the regions that are bordering ours. They don't have their own. But we have, I don't know, more than 100 of, of different types and every region has its own. So this is something a lot of Ukrainians maybe didn't pay too much attention to and nobody knew worldwide. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a big, big issue for us to, to work on, on promoting and putting us on that map. Not showing that, you know, it's again... I don't I think it's very important not to to create some myth and and doing like Russia is doing like every dictatorship state is doing that making something like a great uh, Russian culture or great Russian literature or something that is too great and the, the dominating and the best in the world and that nobody would work without it I think it's a very wrong approach mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same time, understanding that we have our own roots, our own culture, and, you know, appreciating and respecting it is very important. And also having it on the world map of, of every aspect of, uh, of cultural heritage. And of course, those stories that people tell themselves are very important in defining their actions in the present as well. And you talked about some of those stories, Ukrainians will will be telling not the mythologized ones but actual exploration of history and many of those are about sort of struggle struggle against empires various empires um but also periods where where ukraine you know was a state in its own right and, and a powerful and influential one in europe but also these stories about ancient democracy and so on now they're complex but they do uh create narratives for the present and of course what we see in autocracies like russia it's not that their canonical literature or their canonical history uh, is an accurate reflection of history or even a complete one. They're highly selective and highly mythologized. So they're not talking about the brave Novgorodians and the First Republic. They're not talking about the Pugachev revolts. They're not talking about periods where it shows that people can actually uh, fight against an autocracy. They kind of brush all that stuff under the carpet. Uh, it seems to me you, Ukrainians are much more open to the complexity and the messiness of history. I mean, that's quite difficult to sell in tourism, but it's a much more healthy approach, isn't it? Looking at the good and the bad elements from, from the past. 
Yeah, I mean, the people in, for, but through tourism, you still learn a little bit more about the country. Yes. So that's a kind of a tricky part. So tourism is more, uh, I don't know, mass mostly. Yes. It's more like a mass culture at some point. Yes. When people travel, they, they see everything. This fast travel is more popular, even though we are trying to work on sustainable travel, on going and looking more for, for the culture and in um, the people's life and making it um, uh, more mm, with respect for, 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 for the people of uh, the places uh, where travelers go to. But still, mostly it's like this mass fast tourism, yes. But at the same time, when people even travel fast, that's important to put some little spots, little information points that would try to get that interest to know a little bit more about the place. And actually Lviv is doing in doing a lot uh, about that. So for example, we have this first um, gasoline lamp that was invented in Lviv. And there is a cafe called Gas Lamp. And there's everything about that, those uh, lamps. And then we have this um, Mazoch, uh, which created Mazochism. He was also born in Lviv. And we have the Mazoch Cafe and one of the hotels where his father worked. There was a police station. They have like a Mazochism room. So this is something, kind of the legends you create, but at the same time, you try to put some interest for, for the historic uh, period of, of time and um and know more about history. So the, these should be these tricks, of course, for, for people who are more about learning history that would look maybe kitschy a little bit, but still for, for, for most of us is fun, yes. And um, uh, and I think that, that we need to, to do that uh, because yeah, not, not many people would go to the historical museum and really read books and archives and go so much deep into to that, but some will. But for those who want, we still need to put some 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 triggers uh, to to see it. I'm afraid I'm one of those people who, who drag my kids around uh, museums and you know, they'll moan, why can't we go to a beach instead? But uh, you touched on another interesting aspect there, but there's two things I wanted to follow up. One's fun, one's kind of less fun. Uh, the first one is, of course, um, you talked about sort of cafes and so on, and food is a fantastic way uh, to put Ukraine on the map. And, of course, we've had the big Bush debate um, early on in the war, which was quite a nice way of trolling uh, the, the Russians. But actually, the unique characteristics of food and flavors are quite a powerful tool, aren't they, in tourism? Yeah. And uh, yeah, my, my, my good friend, uh, the Ukrainian chef, Yevhen Klopotenko, who is actually one of the these fighters for, for Borscht. And he his team, they did big research, actually, preparing for UNESCO all these materials that Borscht is Ukrainian because there are many proofs and from archives and, and, and the recipes of Borscht from different regions. Um, that made this first attraction to Ukrainian cuisine, but also I think the, the food and the cuisine was not uh, um, an exception in this Russian uh, invasion of everything in Ukraine. So they were also trying to um, 
to kill the Russian, uh, to kill Ukrainian uh, cuisine. I mean, in the terms of making it Soviet. So they, they made like these Soviet dishes and they put some of the national dishes to that Soviet menu. So for example, borscht was one of, of that Soviet menu. But that way they wouldn't try to say it's Ukrainian, but it's like all Soviet, whatever, and Soviet meant mostly Russian. Uh, and um, many dishes, they were forgotten. And also the, the Yevgen um, Klopotanko, he's uh, working also on bringing those dishes, their recipes, finding them in the old cookbooks and putting them, for example, in the menu of his restaurants, but also putting that on the map of interest. And now we have also this coalition of Ukrainian chefs that do work with, with creating modern Ukrainian cuisine, finding ingredients, all type, typical that they are from here, from Ukraine, using Ukrainian products and also promoting it um, in many countries. So there are many of these Ukrainian charity dinners uh, around Europe. They travel, they try to promote in uh, during Eurovision in Liverpool, there was this Ukrainian village and also part with, with Ukrainian food court. Um, and we have also some of the plans uh, launching a project uh, about promoting uh, Ukrainian dishes uh, to be launched in the restaurants in Europe. Uh, because sometimes through food, it's like a first, we say it that, you know, they, I don't know, the pass to man's heart is through the stomach, but uh, also that I think to tourist heart, when you taste something, we all like Italian food, yes. And we want to go to Italy to, to eat it, to taste it. And Ukrainian cuisine is, is different than, than Mediterranean, of course, but, but it's extremely tasty. I think it's really in this part of the continent, uh, the most uh, tasty one. And that's interesting. And there are two interesting points there. I mean, firstly, I, I was privileged enough uh, recently to meet uh, Olya Hercules, who is a food writer in the UK. And of course, uh, fantastic to introduce Ukrainian cuisine and culture to uh, to a British audience there, but also many British families will have uh, Ukrainian refugees staying with them, and they will have you know cooked dishes and introduced food to their host families. So this is a kind of sort of cultural mixing, quite unintended and born out of tragedy, but that also has sort of raised a, a lot of awareness. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true because all of my international friends who ever tried borscht, they are like, oh, I want to get a recipe, I, I want to cook it at home. You know, this is something that actually is easy to cook even uh, for, for everybody, and the ingredients are more or less everywhere you can buy them. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a, I mean, in general, Ukrainian refugees, many of them uh, would be also a part of this people to people connection. And uh, when they come back, I hope many of them will come back. It's very important for us that the Ukrainians will return to rebuild and, um, um, you know, they will come back to, to the country, um, that there will be also that connection. Then people will then visit them and then bring their friends and this um, uh, user-generated content will, will help uh, people to get to know uh, Ukraine better. So I've got sort of two two questions left, really. I mean, one, well, I've got hundreds, but in the time we've got left, there's only two questions. Um, one of those, and I think it's quite an interesting and subtle one, is that many of the people uh, who are 
um, prominent journalists who uh, you know we've seen uh, in the West uh, really sort of pushing Ukraine um, are female, incredibly strong female figures, including the Nobel Prize winner. We mentioned sort of cooks and uh, people uh, trying to revive Ukrainian literature, an extraordinary strong sort of female presence. Do you think that idea of sort of strong feminine uh, sort of intellectual and activist personalities, could that be sold as part of the Ukrainian identity? Uh, I think that in general in Ukraine, uh, the, oh, uh, let's say, it's a very, how to say, the very, we have the very strong in general women uh, since many, many centuries, since uh, the uh, Olga, um, uh, that was the, uh, the Duchess of Kiev, yes, and she, she was really one of the strongest figures and many, many other women that in many families, uh, women were doing a lot. And Ukrainian men are fighters. It's really, since Cossack times, they were going to fight and women were the one ruling everything in the in the families in the villages and uh you know keeping that household and being uh very strong then of course during soviet times and after the collapse of soviet union i think the role of women um was a little bit um changed and that they were trying to put that russian way of of treating women in the society and now we are you know we are going back to the roots and uh of course um and it was a big challenge also for us to to have the in this 90s when women were trying to leave the country or looking for better life because they couldn't find their way in their own country so now i think we have more possibilities for women and now they show also this uh, we have men fighting in the front and women keeping that uh, other front that is promoting Ukraine worldwide, uh, you know, looking for their children, um, for their families. Uh, I think that, it, yeah, of course, the role of Ukrainian women uh, is a big part of our history. I don't know how to work with it during the tourism because it's very tricky to to work with that nowadays, yes. <laughs> uh or and not going to some kind of we have beautiful women part of 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 uh, promotion, uh, definitely not what we want to do, but but yeah I think that showing that we have strong, wise you know and, and intelligent women it's important. And the last question really centers on something you've you've mentioned several times in this, and this is decolonization, creating a strong Ukraine identity by recognizing that there's been a process of appropriating various aspects of Ukrainian history. But there's another immediate challenge, isn't there, in that so many museums, so many sort of houses of artists, writers and so on, have actually been destroyed. Um, so will part of that, uh, you know, revival uh, or even creation of Ukrainian tourism also involve massive decolonization and reconstruction of the lost uh, or, or damaged uh, cultural um, institutions? Um, yes, it's a part that we actually started. The first was decommunization, uh, but then um, sometimes some people think and probably say that Russia is using a lot of Soviet Union style, yes, but I think they combined their styles, some combination of 
Soviet Union style of brainwashing and all these, um, you know, methods from 1984 book, uh, but also the the Russian Empire myth of of being so great and having this great culture as I was talking about. So for us, first we had this decommunization law. But now there is a new one, this decolonization. So we need to get rid of all these narratives of Russian empire that made everything great here. So, And this is another example because Ukraine, for some period of our history, was part of different um, empires uh, and the continent. And Western part of Ukraine was part of Austrian uh, empire. And I'm always telling this as an example that, you know, Austria became a democratic country and just is concentrated on its own country and making life of their citizens better. And I mean, it's doing really great. We, we can visit Austria and see it as an example. Russia, like, instead of that, doesn't care about their people life, but is concentrating and putting efforts to shape, to, to kind of... Uh, propaganda to make propaganda in other countries so we have for example odessa that was built during russian empire times and we have lviv that was built during austrian empire so but in Lviv, nobody is you know putting monuments to to uh to the king uh, the tsar yes uh, of austria and saying oh we are austrian city and you know the, these thanks to austria and empire uh, this beautiful architecture is here nobody is doing that yes everybody is appreciating as a part of the history they can tell the years or whatever some some figures architects who build it and the same time odessa was built also by western european architects italians austrian but for the money of Russian Empire that also destroyed uh, Cossacks and did many, many bad things, started like the slavery for Ukrainian villages, but they built Odessa. And they were investing a lot in that narrative, telling that Odessa is Russian city built by Russian Empire, while they were destroying other, you know, making life of Ukrainian miserable taking the, all the money from them and building, paying uh, Western architects to build Odessa. So it's nice, we have beautiful city, but it's Ukrainian and we are in this part of the history, we were fighting for it and we need to tell this story. So yes, with working with tour guides, showing the, the real history, working with museums, with the story you need, you need to tell, yes, the, the true story, it's, it's a very important part. And um, unless Russia will have a possibility to pay for that propaganda, to to invest in it, then then you know for Ukraine it will be easier to go back to to the roots and to uh, the real history of of our cities. And that's an incredibly important sentiment there, and uh, I think it's a good way to to end our conversation. Uh, the idea that focusing on sort of truth and strength of Ukrainian culture. Uh, is a great foundation for for future tourism. Mariana, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to me. And it seems like an incredibly important task you've got to do, which will only get you know busier and busier and busier uh, as uh, Ukrainian victory comes into sight. So thank you so much, and Slava Ukraina. Hello, I'm Slava. Thank you. Bye bye.